0: Arqua. My name is Will Appleby and this is Animal Matters. On today’s show, New Zealand’s general election is fast approaching this weekend on October 17. We’ll do a quick recap of some of the policies or lack thereof that political parties have put out in the run-up to the election. And freshwater ecologist Dr. Mike Joy sits down to chat about the disastrous effect New Zealand's dairy industry has had on our environment. Animal Matters is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation. As always, we're here to open up for discussion at the key issues facing animals. We bring you the latest news and commentary every fortnight with a focus on the exploitation of animals. Animal Matters is, of course, on Patreon. You can support the show by heading to patreon.com forward slash animal matters and making a monthly pledge. Patrons can unlock bonus content and get early access to new episodes before they're released. Polling day is fast approaching for the 2020 general election. This weekend, Kiwis will decide who will form the next government. Although, since early voting opened over a week ago, many have already cast their vote, including myself. Get out and vote, people. If you're not enrolled to vote, you can enroll on the spot at any voting place. Find out your closest voting place online at vote.nz. Policy is being thrown out left, right and centre, and even sometimes off the hoof. There's been at least a handful of policies that seem to have been thought up on the spot, What we're not seeing is a whole lot of animal welfare policy. The two major parties, National and Labour, are pretty silent on the issue of animal welfare. You're lucky to get an acknowledgement of animal welfare from either of them. More on that later. The only party in Parliament with a comprehensive animal welfare policy is the Green Party. We've canvassed their policy in previous podcasts, but to recap, The Greens have committed to establishing an independent animal welfare commissioner, as well as a Minister for Animal Welfare, who is not the Minister for Primary Industries. They'll also phase out all farming practices that cause suffering, including farrowing crates, factory farming, the de-beaking of hens, and live export to countries without strong animal welfare rules. They'll also ban rodeo and greyhound racing. Sustainable NZ are the only other party campaigning for the general election who have an actual animal welfare policy, which is pretty similar to the Green Party's policy, with a few differences. There's not much to see in terms of animal welfare policy from the other parties. Animal Agenda Aotearoa surveyed Sustainable NZ, the Green Party, Aotearoa Legalised Cannabis Party, Outdoors Party, Labour, National, New Zealand First and ACT, to get their position on a variety of animal issues. You can check out the results at animalagenda.org.nz. Interestingly though, the National Party is taking a page from New Zealand First book by giving a wink and a nudge to the racing industry. Last week, National Party leader Judith Collins announced her party's horse racing policy. The policy doesn't promise the sector any funding windfalls. Instead, it vows to investigate the feasibility of tax breaks for bloodstock, support upgrades for racing infrastructure, and the return of trackside radio. Their policy doesn't mention anything about animal welfare, though, which, according to the national leader, is because it wasn't a concern for her. (sighs) Ms Collins had the following to say about horse welfare. The reason it's not a concern is because I know that owners of horses and breeders and trainers really look after their animals. It's really important to remember that without those animals in peak condition, then there is no racing. I just wonder, some people who don't understand racing, just how they could ever think that? I've seen people working with horses. They love their horses. They're not going to put their horses at risk. To me, it sounds like it's Collins who doesn't understand the racing industry. Otherwise, she would know all about the pain caused by whipping and the bleeding within horses' lungs, which is so common that they're called bleeders in post-race steward reports. Not to mention the countless horses that are injured in jumps racing, and the horses that are consistently killed each year in the Melbourne Cup. But anyway, it's not a huge surprise considering the National Party has next to no animal welfare policies. But I digress. Last week we also had a surprise mention from Labour leader Jacinda Ardern about live export. The question was put to her by Duncan Garner on the AEM show.
1: Are you going to ban
0: the export of live animals? Well, we've got a temporary ban at the moment. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule that out. Uh, we haven't made a final call yet, um, though, Duncan. But at the moment, it's all
1: on hold. Why? What, do you, in principle, believe in live exports? I
0: have, I have significant concerns about live exports. I think a number of us do. Um, But we haven't made it. I do want to just make sure that as a team we sit down and go back through some of the impacts um, of those decisions, you know, there are some animals in quarantine at the moment. You know, they. Um, you know, I don't know what their future would be if they weren't uh, uh, if they weren't exported here in New Zealand. So yeah, there's a few things to work through, but I wouldn't rule it out. It goes without saying that this is a very non-committal statement. But considering how infrequently Ardern makes any comments on animal welfare issues. I'll take what I can get. Reading between the lines, it sounds like that if there is going to be a ban on live exports, the animals already in quarantine will likely be exported. And that would be the last of it. The Labour Party are holding their cards very close to their chest though, so any speculation on the matter is purely academic. Stuff senior political reporter Henry Cook made an interesting observation on Twitter last week on how Jacinda takes a stance on things she nominally supports but wants to delay. For example, Jacinda Ardern drives an EV, but when she's asked if she would introduce policy to encourage uptake of EVs, she said we need to get the infrastructure right first. When asked if she would introduce compulsory Reo Māori classes in schools, She said we need to train the teachers first. When asked if she would lower the voting age, she says we need civics education in schools first. It's very clever politicking. She gets to stick to her values and postpone action. Why is this relevant? Well, you heard it yourself. Ardern has significant concerns about live export, but she needs to go over some of the impacts of those decisions. Now, allegedly... The Labour Party has an election manifesto due to be released. This will, I assume, outline their policies on, well, everything. It's likely to come this week, so I'll be interested in scouring through that to see if Labour does plan to take any action on any animal welfare issues. October is World Veg Month, and this October, SAFE is campaigning to get kiwis to ditch dairy by signing up to the Dairy Free Challenge on safe.org.nz. For part two of our conversations about the impacts of dairy this month, I sat down with freshwater ecologist Dr. Mike Joy to talk about the effect the dairy industry is having on our waterways.
1: So I'm um, a senior researcher at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies victoria university wellington
0: so you're uh, probably one of the leading figures in terms of fresh water currently two-thirds of new zealand's waterways are unswimmable how did we get here
1: um well we could argue i mean people will argue about the statistics and how how much of it is but you know a couple of big studies have shown that yeah about 60 percent or something like that but uh, why they like that it's because two big causes um too many animals uh, on the land, to, you know, too much farming intensity and and agricultural systems that mean that a lot of the waste gets washed off into waterways, and then for another small proportion of the waterways, uh, it's because of human waste and a complete failure of our wastewater treatment plants and the infrastructure that feeds those plants. So you know, probably the unswimmable bit. Under the regulations we have at the moment, it's about uh, E. coli, which are a measure of faecal contamination. So it's about poo getting into the water, the potential for us then to get it, ingest it when we're swimming, and then get get illnesses. But I just wanted to say that that's far from all of the potential health problems in, in water. It's just what we have in the rules at the moment. So um, there are there are a bunch of other pathogens that are really dangerous, and there are uh, toxic algal blooms that are potentially very dangerous for humans, and um, you know, and and the causes are intensive agriculture for about forty percent of our waterways, and human and intensive human land use. Uh, I mean, uh, wastewater and fecal contamination at a much much smaller uh, proportion of those waterways
0: you see sometimes agriculture groups when they're faced with questions about their impact on um, on waterways and they'll very quickly point the finger at um, you know the urban environment and how um, urban populations make an impact on on waterways and, and rightly so to a certain extent what well, But what's your take on that? Like, do you think that's a fair sort of comparison or?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, like you say, it's true. Um, We are really bad in our urban areas and because of, mostly because of that infrastructure and, uh, you know, this crazy idea that we can just tip uh, our wastewater, discharge to freshwater. But I just need to kind of keep reminding the agriculture industry that less than 1% of waterways in New Zealand, of the length of all the waterways in New Zealand are, in urban areas and urban catchments and around close to 40 percent are in pasture or farming catchments so yes it's a big problem but it's at a much much smaller scale than the than the agriculture side of things but it's not i mean we, we can't hide from the fact that there's about 350 consented wastewater discharges for human you know settlements going into fresh uh, going in, into water um, and of those, about 150 go into freshwater, so into rivers. Um, the rest are ocean outfalls. But the, of the 150, only seven meet level B of the current standards. So I don't think any of them meet level A and only seven meet level B and the rest of them fail. So we have huge uh, problems also with our urban uh, discharges and wastewater, uh, human waste water.
0: How bad is the state of our waterways at the moment?
1: <laughs> well, it's pretty hard to know how it could be much worse. And I I, just, I think that the best thing for people to understand probably um, the at the top of food webs in our, in our waterways, so from an ecological point of view, um, the freshwater fish are probably the best indicator we have of the health of our waterways. And currently three quarters of our native fish are on the threatened or at risk list so they are threatened uh, or at risk of extinction, and that is higher than I can find for any other country in the world. Certainly, for any other developed country that keeps records, um, we are among the we are the worst, or among the worst. So, you know, that's to me that's the number one indicator. And then, the next best indicator we have of the health of our waterways is the life that lives in there. The, so we um, we have uh, this measure of ecosystem health called the macroinvertebrate community index which looks at the life in there and then you can see from that that you know about a third of our nearly all of our lowland waterways certainly all of the lowland waterways and pasture and and, uh, city catchments all are either um, moderately or severely polluted uh, and and fall off the bottom of that scale so um, you know that's it's hard to imagine how it could get much worse than that and it's getting worse and it hasn't got better in the last 30 years it's got worse over the last 30 years and continues to decline.
0: Tell us about synthetic nitrogen fertilizer how is it made and, and why do we use it?
1: yeah it's a very inter- interesting question about why we use it so it comes back in last century early last century a couple of German scientists figured out a way of using fossil fuels to take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and make it into a form that can be used by plants. Um, prior to that, plants and plants continue. Plants and bacteria and uh, can biologically fix uh, nitrogen from the atmosphere and make it available to for plants to grow, and that's how we farmed and produced food uh, right up until that time. But then, when that discovery was made, then there was money to be made in selling this stuff. It's just a classic story of of uh, an entrepreneur, you know, you can, you suddenly find that you can sell something to people that they previously got for free, but they'll pay for it. Um, and so, you know, New Zealand's a classic example that we, we produced milk. Uh, we, we had all the dairy farms and all the farming in New Zealand, right up until the 1980s, we didn't have any artificial nitrogen. And then through a couple of, uh, interesting situations, which I can go into if you want to. We ended up creating a uh, a plant in, in Taranaki to take uh, our natural gas off the coast there and turn that into nitrogen fertilizer. So suddenly there was a product and there was a company and there was sales reps and people went around and convinced farmers that they should use this stuff and it, and it took off. And So now we have this crazy situation in New Zealand where we, a huge amount of damage is you know, caused by that nitrogen, but it comes from fossil fuels. And if you think about it, that we make milk from fossil fuels, then it, it's hard to imagine a, a system that could be more unsustainable than that. Uh, but but it, it's a global phenomena, and now we, as in, we humans now create more nitrogen, uh, fix more nitrogen, make more nitrogen uh, in the system than all of the other natural processes put together. And you, you could take any human on the planet pretty much and have a look at their cells, at the nitrogen in their body, and 80% of that nitrogen is synthetic nitrogen. So we have completely altered uh, a natural biological system and, and turned it into an industrial one. And, and you know, we, we we can talk about all of the impacts that that had, but that's kind of the, the history of, of where it came from.
0: Do we... Do we have to use it? I mean, by the sounds of it, uh, I suppose it was a convincing sales pitch, but, you know, is it really that crucial for these farmers to use synthetic nitrogen?
1: No, I, I would say it's about as crucial as uh, sugar is in, in um, drinks. You know, it's <laughs> it's addictive. It's nice once you first taste it, you kind of want more of it. So from a farming perspective, you put it on and then your, your natural systems of producing nitrogen. So up until then, the The pastures were full of clover, mainly um, white clover that would do that process of taking atmospheric nitrogen and making it available for the other plants, but that gave them a competitive advantage. But when you add it, you know, uh, unnaturally synthetic nitrogen, then those plants don't have an advantage anymore and they disappear out of the system. So, so kind of within a few years, you're addicted to it. If you, if you don't put it on, then you're, you're, you won't produce as much grass. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those classic traps that, that people get into. But um, it, it drove, you know, it, again, going back to a global scale, it, gr- it drove what we call a green revolution. It, grow- it drove massive population growth by making more food available. So the best estimates that I've seen are that if we took synthetic nitrogen out of our current food system, then we would struggle to feed 3 billion people so less than half of the current global population but i just need to add that that is under our current food system uh that this the the food system i'm referring to that where about half of the food produced gets wasted thrown out and is very much dominated by animal agriculture so a massive proportion of the nitrogen that goes into the system goes in there to feed animals and, and then to get the food from the animals, which is a very inefficient way of of converting um, that into into animal, into food protein. So um we we would struggle we would own you know barely we would wouldn't be able to feed half of the population if we took synthetic nitrogen out. But then if we took the animals out, then we wouldn't need all that, and we could feed the population that we have quite easily if we took away most of the animals and. Uh, a lot of the waste as well
0: now new zealand has some of the the highest rates of bowel cancer in the world um with the highest incidence rates in christchurch or in canterbury canterbury also has some of the highest levels of nitrates in our drinking water which is largely attributed to intensified dairying in the region
1: is this a coincidence yeah well that's that's the million dollar question we um and it's not just the highest rates are in canterbury and southland for that um for the colorectal cancer, Um, but there's also, you know, huge intensification. Um, The other part of that story is that, you know, all of the drinking water in Canterbury comes from groundwater or surface water. So there's a direct link between the water that Cantabrians are drinking and what happens on the land. And we've seen, you know, very sudden increases in levels of nitrogen in drinking water in bores and drinking water in Canterbury. Uh, and, And it's kind of this quite easy to see relationship between the source of the water coming from intensively farmland, um, the shallower balls, you know, the shallower wells being impacted first and the deeper ones being, you know, uh, um, polluted or contaminated with nitrogen later on. There is a paper that's in the process of being reviewed at the moment. I'm part of a team um, with Otaka University and Auckland University working on the the relationship between colorectal cancer and drinking water. And there's a study that is in the process that's where we have data on nitrate levels in drinking water for about 4 million New Zealanders. And I can't give you the exact numbers except to say that um, the study shows that uh, a very frighteningly large number of New Zealanders have nitrate in drinking water at a level... At or above a level that's been shown in many studies around the world to be uh, giving you an increased risk of getting colorectal cancer so that the, the coincidence starts to look more like a cause than a coincidence when you take that into account um, and especially where those, where those cancers are. And when they do the kind of study, uh, the analysis that the epidemiologists um, do, they can um, come up with a ranking for the causes of, of cancer And I can't remember all of them, but it comes in at number three based on the statistics at the moment. So nitrate in drinking water is number three cause of colorectal cancer in New Zealand using this modelling. Of course, you know, these are cumulative effects. It's not one thing that causes cancer and it takes time. It'll be an additive thing. So what, what happens to that nitrate in drinking water is it's converted in our bodies to nitrite. And that's the, where the known link is with cancer. So, people, I'm, I'm sure many listeners will have heard of the processed meats, you know, the salamis and those kind of things that are very high in, in bacon that are high in nitrites and their link with cancer. Well, that's the same. So, if you're, you're already eating that and that's a risk, and then you add nitrate in your drinking water, which has been converted in us to nitrite, then it's going to add to it. So, there's, you know, it's never a clear cut thing, in the same way that, you know, and this is this is where you struggle with this kind of, you know, trying to get a point across like this. So, you know, say um, I smoked all my life and and died of lung cancer, then I, I'm pretty sure that the medical experts could not prove that it was the smoking that killed me, but but we can, you know, see from population studies that smoking all your life gives you a much increased risk of getting lung cancer and it's the same kind of thing if somebody gets colorectal cancer to try and actually prove the cause of that would not be possible but when you look at large populational studies and you relate nitrate and drinking water to that then you can find these very clear and very strong patterns and and I guess the crucial bit that under our current legislation the maximum allowable value for nitrate is 11.3 milligrams per litre of nitrate nitrogen Uh, and the level at Where you get a significant increase in the risk of colorectal cancer is less than one milligram. So ten times less than our current limit. And you're you're you've significantly increased the risk of getting colorectal cancer. So the the legislation is way behind the science.
0: That's quite frightening. You know, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, where you expressed some frustration with the the, the pace of change um, at a political level. You know, when you when you think about what's happening to our waterways and the impact that's having on not only the environment but potentially human health as well. You know, how does that impact you? Like, how how do you feel about everything that's going on at the moment? Um,
1: yeah, I, well, I've been I've been fighting in this space for a long time now, and uh, I kind of I'm at, a, I'm at a bad point because for 20 years, I, I totally believed and told everybody who would listen that um, if we want to get change, we, we have to give the government a mandate to make change, right? And so to get the, to get the mandate, we needed to have people aware that the problem is, because most people, you know, go back 20 years, had no idea that we had uh, a problem with fresh water in New Zealand. Um, they believed the clean green spin. And so, you know, it's a process of, and, and not just me, many other people working in the space of highlighting the issues of, of, of um, around water in New Zealand. And we got to the point where, you know, leading up to the last election, um, there was multiple polls that said that New Zealanders thought that um, fresh water was their number one environmental issue. And so this this coalition government had a clear mandate from eighty percent of New Zealanders that they want something done about fresh water, and I and I've been you know banging on all my all my life saying we government won't change unless we make them change. We give them the mandate and they will change. And then so it was an incredible disappointment for me that a couple of months ago, when Minister Parker announced the changes in the, to the national policy statement for fresh water, that 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 just didn't take on any of or almost none of the advice that was given by the science technical advisory group that I was part of that he set up to advise them on the changes necessary for freshwater to achieve what New Zealanders want. Um, so yeah, I, it's, it's a real, it's kind of, it's a big letdown. It's a, it's a, a you know, a loss of faith in democracy for me to have gone through that process and, and then to end up here.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's, Effective lobbying on perhaps the agriculture industry's part that um, has led to such a letdown?
1: Yes, yeah, oh, for sure. I'm, I, I'm just amazed. I'm, I never cease to be amazed about the power of the agricultural industry um, to affect uh, government you know, policy in New Zealand. They have incredible um, reach. We, we, we had a very strong warning of that through the process of the uh, national policy statement being on these groups and then discovering halfway through the process that while they were they were being you know setting up these groups with us, the Ministry of Environment for the environment had had a whole bunch of secret meetings with industry that we only discovered by chance um, and, and they admitted to it and, and gave a bigger formal apology for it. but it doesn't change anything. It's just so blatantly obvious. That they 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 uh, you know they, they speak with a forked tongue, um, and I and I have no idea how aware the minister was of what his ministry is up to. They, you know, there's a lot of. I mean, I, I, clearly, I don't trust them now. I, I can't trust them after after they did that to me or to us. So um, you know, whether the minister knew or not, I don't know. But that's just one. And I'm sure it's just the tip of the iceberg because it was just pure chance that we managed to discover that, uh, you know, what what the dodgy stuff was going on there. So that's, you know, they, they the, the industry have incredible power over this government or over governments.
0: You know, and you mentioned you're constantly amazed by the power that these guys have. It's incredible what, what they're able to achieve sometimes. And, you know, we face the same thing in terms of animal welfare policy. How do we get ourselves out of this? Um, that's again another million-dollar question.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm hoping that you know, I kind of, I'm very cynical. I mean, people can tell I'm cynical, and I don't I think I'm. It's not surprising that I'm cynical after what I've been through. But I can only hope that if after the election that Labor and Greens uh, form a coalition without New Zealand First, that that maybe we can have you know potential. Change. I mean, there was never going to be positive environmental change as long as Shane Jones was in the room. Um, and so, we. And, but but I also think it's a convenient excuse for the Labor to just say, "Oh, was to blame." You know, New Zealand first for everything that didn't happen. Um, but 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 we'll see. You know, I, I mean, I, I guess we can just hope that if they're they're in the stronger position in government, that they will be able to, to push through some positive change. I mean, it's you, the trouble is that you come up against this this belief that you know dairy is the backbone of the economy. There's kind of like a mantra that everybody says, but but nobody can prove. Um, in fact, I can prove the opposite that it's not the backbone of the economy. It's actually a huge drag on on the economy because the costs are, outweigh the gains from intensive dairy in New Zealand. So. Um, but you know as long as that they they keep towing that line as long as people unquestionably accept questioningly accept that mantra then it's very hard to to take on that industry
0: economic benefits and dairy you're still left with a mess at the end of it to clean up
1: yeah i mean i've we've written a couple of papers on it and i can show so many examples of um you know that you make it costs you more to clean up than what you make from the industry and you know, I mean, uh, uh, one of my favourite examples, actually, for, you know, for Cantabrians is um, you know, Lake Ellismere, um Lake Tiwaihoro, and the analysis that was done on what it would, to clean up the lake, the effort that would have to go into cleaning up that lake. And the, and the economic analysis showed that there would be um, a loss of income for dairy farmers. Uh, and it was all about dairy. Um, for a bunch of dairy farms that are in that catchment not that many would be a loss of three hundred million dollars per annum for those farms so therefore they weren 't going to do it you know so basically so ecan and the government went well obviously we can 't three hundred million dollars we can 't do we can 't have you know farmers missing out on three hundred million dollars a year so we won 't do anything about that lake justifying it because of the cost but then nobody mentioning well if that if it's going to cost $300 million to those farmers not pollute that lake, then surely that is a $300 million a year subsidy that society is paying to those farmers to allow them to do that. And and then I, I can give you the example of, of what we're currently paying. We taxpayers are currently paying farmers not to farm in Lake Taupo Tarua and if we apply applied that same rate, it works out to $400 a kilogram of nitrogen leached. If we paid that to Canterbury dairy farmers for the whole region, that would come to $12 billion we would have to pay to have them not pollute our waterways. And, you know, so that's about what the whole industry is worth to us per annum. For the whole country. And yet, you know, so that's just, just Canterbury alone, the costs are twelve billion dollars per annum. So, it, it, there, there's, no, there's no way that you can justify that. And, and of course, the farmers will, will be jumping up and down. We aren't subsidized. All the Europeans are subsidized. Other countries are subsidizing their farmers, but we aren't. We're the good guys. But then, you know, but we're, we're not directly giving them cash, but we're paying them to farm by allowing them, you know, we're subsidizing them indirectly by allowing them to destroy the, our waterways.
0: So I guess what you're saying is, what I'm picking up is, we, we need a transition in the the entire way that we grow food um, and generate exports.
1: Yes, and, and I mean, I do want to emphasise that it's not, I, I see the farmers as just as much victims in this as we are, um, you know, uh, uh, Cantabrians drinking water or any of us are victims the same way the farmers are victims of their own industry, that forces them into this situation where they are ostracized or Mm. this huge gap is opening up between the rest of New Zealanders and them because their industry pushes this, this model and forces them into spending more and more money on, on uh, fertilizers and palm kernel and, uh, you know, it just
0: they've been sold a dream, haven't they?
1: Yeah. So, so I mean, yeah, uh, it's it's we have to tra- transition away from it. Um, it's clear that we have, you know, dairy farming should never have happened in Canterbury. It's the wrong place for dairy. It's it animals on the landscape there means an almost instant, you know, pollution of waterways. That um, means massive amounts of irrigation are required that cause other. You know, massive uh, ecological effects on waterways, and so it—it was—it's a—it's a crazy experiment and laissez-faire, uh, you know, management where hands-off industry knows best. Let them go for it, and it's backfired horribly. And so it's time to face up to that.
0: Well, now I feel a bit cynical.
1: <laughs> yeah, join the club. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, but look, I. Um, I appreciate, personally, I pr- appreciate the work that you do. Um, you know, I think you're doing a lot of good work. Um, and, um, you know, you're, you're highlighting these massive, you know, systemic issues that we've got in our country.
1: Oh, it's really good and no, nice to talk, Will. Um, and, and I really appreciate the work that you guys do as well. Um, you know, it's, we're kind of, we're, the, we're, the, we're, the, we're trying to be the conscience for the rest of New Zealand and it's often hard work to, to do that job. I think as a country, we need to have a grown-up conversation about intensive farming, uh, animal—you know—animal welfare issues. Um, you know, there's just a raft of, of disasters, you know, awaiting us, or uh, we're in the process of having because of that. And we need to kind of—it's—it's it's very hard. I think mean, I think you you probably know. Well, ha- it's almost like a religion. It's like or rugby. You know, if you dare question. Rugby dairy uh, in New Zealand you're in for you're in for, a, you're in for, for problems and, and it's that's so childish and we need to grow up and have a proper conversation about it because it's not it's not good for our future.
0: You've been listening to animal matters. This podcast is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation and produced by myself, Will Appleby. Make sure you subscribe to stay across Animal Matters on whatever your favourite podcast platform is. If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. If you want to support the show, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Until next time, ka kite anō.